It was a little over a year and a half ago that we were informed of the relatively sudden passing of a friend, a friend that we had known for many years. John was one of those guys that were you to have met him and only spent a few minutes with him, you would walk away saying, that is a good man. And I think back on our friend John, hear the words that come to my mind, quiet, gentle, kind, gracious, generous. The first time I ever went on a trip outside of the United States, it was a, a trip to go to Costa Rica to work, go with a work team, and uh, we were going to build a, a church just in a, in a small town southeast of San Jose, the capital city, and John happened to be on the team. And uh, we were gone for about two weeks, and uh, we, did, by God's grace, were able to get more done than what they had thought we were able to get done. Uh, someone said about our particular team, we've never seen a team that works harder than this team or that plays harder than this team. And uh, every, uh, every afternoon at lunch, there was touch football out in the streets of this little town called Paraiso. And uh, when we were done at the last Friday night, the, the walls of the church were up and the roof was on. And, and I remember the pastor standing, weeping, just never thinking that they would be able to have a church building of their own. About halfway through the time, uh, the church members, the people of this little church, asked if they could have members of the work team divide up and go to different homes for, for dinner. And, and I happened to go with John. We got to go to dinner. And, and some of you have heard this story before because it made such a profound impact on my life. We went to the, to the house of a, a young couple. Uh, I was impressed because they had a macaw, you know, this, in, in this nice big cage. And I found out that was kind of standard in Costa Rica. We had a meal that I felt was a simple meal. It was a classic Costa Rican meal. There was rice and black beans and some chicken and a little bit of salad. And uh, once we were done later on, there were some fried plantains with a, a kind of a sweet sauce on them and, and a nice strong cup of coffee. And, and between their broken English and our broken Spanish, we were actually able to communicate we were able to connect. We grew. We became friends that night. And, and they walked with us down the road till we went back to our meeting place. And we laughed and we talked together. And over the remainder of the time, whenever the four of us were near, we, we were just drawn to each other. John and I were part of that. And, and even after we came here, when we'd go back, John and I would talk about that night. The next day, the, the missionary that was kind of in charge of things pulled me off to the side. He knew that I was the youth pastor. He knew that I was there representing the staff of our church. And, and he asked me what we had for dinner. And I thought that was kind of an odd question, but I played along. And I told him what we had. And he explained to me that for a Costa Rican household in that particular community, the dinner that we had was considered a very fine dish. Then he went on to tell me that the couple that had hosted us 
were barely scraping together to make ends meet. He had been a mechanic who had lost his job. She was working part-time as a secretary. And they knew that the work team was coming. And they had scrimped and saved for months to host because they knew they wanted to host some of the work team. And when they knew that there was a pastor in the midst, they went and asked specifically if they could have the pastor in their home. His words to this day have an impact on me. He looked at me and he said, Scott, they sacrificed for you. In that moment... And every time I think about that moment and have thought about that moment, I am struck by the humbling reality of being on the receiving end of someone else's grace. Yeah, I was a youth pastor. Youth pastor and wealth, those are not two words that you use in the same sentence. And yet at the time, we were in a a little house that we owned. We had two kids, we had, a, we had a missionary kid living with us, a teenager that we were the guardians of, you know, and, and I realized I had in my pocket, in my wallet, the means to have repaid them for that meal and maybe stocked their pantry for groceries, but to do anything like that would have been the height of an insult. In that moment, I had no earning power. I simply was supposed to have done what happened to just receive. There was nothing else I could do. This morning, as we consider faith, we need to bear in mind that faith and grace go hand in hand. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Romans chapter 4 to the part of the passage I just read. We're going to be in Romans 4 and we're going to pick it up in verse 9. When we were last together a couple of weeks ago, we discovered the Apostle Paul pointing to two witnesses of the grace of God. The first one, and the one that we'll continue to look at, was Abraham. And remember that word from the book of Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. What an important statement that it just, Paul will not get off of that statement for a while. But then he added a second witness. He added the great King David. David who wrote in the Psalms, Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. And so Paul is writing in this style to the Roman church, This church that was made up of Jews who were followers of Jesus and Romans or Gentiles, non-Jews who were followers of Jesus. And he's writing to them in this dialogue style of writing. And what he's trying to do is help them to understand the, 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 the equality we have when it comes to being in relationship with Christ. No one has spiritual privilege. And so in this dialogue writing, he anticipates questions. And we pick it up in verse 9 of Romans chapter 4. Paul says, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? And so that, that's the real question. Who is this for? Uh, is, who can get in on this deal? This idea of having your sins forgiven. This idea of having your faith counted for righteousness 
Who's, who can get in? Is it only for the Jews, the circumcised? Or can anyone else get on this? Do you have to go through the ritual of circumcision to be able to get in on this deal? And what Paul's doing here is he's starting to bring Jews and Gentiles yet again onto the same plane. You see, for many Jewish followers of Jesus in that early time, that first century, the idea was, you bet, anybody can come into a faith relationship with Jesus, but the door to that relationship walks you through the Jewish ritual of circumcision and the Jewish tradition of following the law. If you do that, you walk through that door, you bet. And Paul's going to use the story of the first Jew, Abraham, to show them that God's door was vastly different than their door. So in verses 9 through 12, Paul's going to make the point that ritual will not make one righteous before God. Let's keep reading. We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he's the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Paul says, this idea of Abram believing in God and it being credited to him for righteousness took place before he was circumcised. In fact, if we look at the time frame, it was probably about 13 years before he was circumcised. His faith was credited to him as righteousness was not based on a ritual. It was not based on an act. For Abraham, what this meant is that it was God's work from start to finish. He couldn't earn it. He had no earning power. For the Roman church... Think about what a huge relief this was, especially for the non-Jewish members, because they realized they didn't have to follow these Jewish laws or standards or rituals to come into faith with Jesus Christ. They simply had to follow God's standards. And remember, think about your Jewish audience for a minute. What a humbling reality. Uh, a humbling reality that my faith is greater than my rituals, and also a reassuring reality. You see, it's, it's not that circumcision was of no value to them. It was that faith was greater than the act of circumcision. And so this puts everyone on equal ground. Paul reminds his Jewish audience that circumcision was a sign of their connection with Abraham. It was significant in that it's an identifying reality. However, all people, both Jew and non-Gentile, have this a non-Jew have the same standing before God. They come into relationship with God by the same way, and that is by faith. So that's how Paul concludes: Abraham is father of the Jews and the non-Jews. Now, this doesn't mean that we can trace our genealogy back to 
Abraham. It does mean that Abraham is the founder, humanly speaking, as the founder of the Jews. Humanly speaking, he's the first one. He's the one God called. And he's the spiritual founder of all who believe. Remember, in Genesis 12, when God called Abraham, he said, all nations will be blessed through you. The nation that God chose to reveal himself in the person of Jesus Christ was the Jewish nation. And the founder of that nation is Abraham. But since Abraham believed God before he started into the the, the rituals, he reminds us that faith is not about an act. It's about a step of trust. You and I have a few, those of us who call ourselves Christ followers, we have some very... Important, very significant, very meaningful rituals. Sometimes we call them ordinances. We just celebrated one. We had communion this morning. Communion is very important. Jesus told us to observe it until he returns. We should never forget what he did for us on the cross. But taking communion does not make me righteous. Taking communion does not give you or me salvation. Salvation is by faith. I take communion because I have put my faith in Jesus. I don't take communion to somehow earn my relationship with Jesus. Another very important, significant ordinance or ritual is baptism. Very important for the Christ follower. Baptism is is a a means of giving testimony to the the change that God has made in one's heart. We will talk about it later on in in this study in Romans. Baptism is is a marker. It's a point where you publicly declare that you are now following Jesus. And one of the things we mentioned, especially when we have a baptismal service, is in in those countries around the world where sometimes persecution happens in, in ways that we can't imagine. When a person says verbally, oh, I put my faith in Christ, okay, fine. But when they make the step of baptism, that's a huge commitment. That's saying, I'm solely following Christ, and that's when persecution often begins. Baptism is so important. It's, it's, it's a, fu- a public declaration. It's a, it's a step of obedience. But I am not saved because I'm baptized. I'm baptized so that I can declare to all that I have put my faith in Jesus. I'm baptized because I've already put my faith in Jesus. So Paul's point is rituals will not make one righteous before God. Rituals and practices have meaning. They're important because they reflect an already present reality. But rituals do not make us right before God. Paul's not done. We pick it up in verse 13. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. 
The second thing what Paul wants us to know here and wanted his readers to know is obedience to a set of standards will not make one righteous before God. So Paul turns his attention to the Mosaic Law. And there's no possible way that Abraham could have ever obeyed the Mosaic Law. So, Because Paul says in verse 13, it wasn't through the law that he received the promise. The law didn't come until 500 years or so after Abraham was dead. So he didn't even know about the Mosaic Law. God's promise to Abraham was before the law existed. And so if the law is how one is made righteous before God, then God's promise to Abram is worthless because Abram didn't even have the law. Why have faith? Why even talk about faith? Why even spend time writing about faith? Why waste the ink on important parchment if one is made righteous before God by efforts of following the law? Now, Paul doesn't discount the value of the law. The law was given by God. And in fact, one of the things that the law does, that the Mosaic law did, at least for the Jewish people, is they realized how none of them were good enough to actually carry out the law fully. There is only one person who completely fulfilled the law perfectly, and that was Jesus, who said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Paul says one of the things that the law does here uh, in verse 15 is the law brings wrath. You break the law, you pay. That's, we all know that. We all know. You, you, you go out on Geneva Road today and you go 75 miles an hour down Geneva Road. Uh, it'll probably be one of the Carroll Stream police officers. But anyway, uh, you, can, you might get pulled over and you will pay a ticket. And if you, when I was a high school kid, we always thought it would be good to and if, if we ever got pulled over, and we were always too scared. To, well, it was later on I got pulled over. But anyway, we always thought it would be good to ask, answer every question with a question, right? Sir, how fast were you going? How fast were you going? <laughs> yeah, that's not going to work out real well for you, you know. Um, Paul says, break the law and you pay. In fact, Paul says in verse 15, this kind of cryptic word, where there's no law, there's no transgression. And and, and the first response would be, well, then that's great. If there's no law, I I can do whatever I want. But that's not the point he's making. Uh, What he's doing, that that word transgression means a deliberate act. And and let me just re-summarize it this way and kind of rephrasing what I, I read from one scholar. Let's say, for sake of argument, that I happen to know that one of my neighbors has a a hot tub and that I periodically will go and enjoy the hot tub when they're not home without them knowing it. Now, this is probably why most of my neighbors don't have a hot tub. But anyway, we're just hypothetically here. I have transgressed. I have done something wrong. I have gone into their hot tub and used it without their permission And that's wrong. It's wrong on an ethical way. It's wrong on a moral way. But let's say that they kind of get wind that somebody's out there, and I forget that they have a ring camera, so they know who that somebody is, and now they put no trespassing signs up around their privacy fence. If I go back into that hot tub now, because when there's no 
trespassing signs, then now I am breaking the law morally, ethically, and legally. I will have to pay. I have ignored there, I have ignored the moral law, I've ignored the ethical law, and now I've ignored the, the legal side of the law, and now I am doubly guilty. And, and, and that scholar concludes this way, knowing the law does not make us heirs, it makes us doubly guilty. Because the, the non-Jews didn't know the law, but they're still guilty of all those things. The Jews knew the law, they're doubly guilty. The, the fact of the matter is, obedience to a set of standards is not going to make one righteous before God. Well then, how does it happen? You can imagine the readers going, okay, what's next? And look at verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but to those who have faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being the things that were not. Let me just put it this way. Grace closes the loop for everyone. When we look at the rituals or following preset list of standards, we find that that's not a unifying factor, it's a dividing factor. Oh, I'm circumcised, you're not. Oh, I was baptized, you're not. Grace closes the loop. Paul says it, doesn't come, it comes by faith, so it may be by grace. It, it puts all of us in the same position. No one can have an advantage over another when it comes to relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It was God's grace. Before there was ever a Jewish nation, before there was ever a Mosaic law, before there were ever any rituals of circumcision, it was God's grace that credited Abraham's faith as righteousness because Abraham simply believed God. It, was God's, it is God's grace that does the same now. And we learn from Abraham's story how his faith and God's grace can give us a pattern for how we're to live. How did Abraham get to this place of honor being the spiritual father of all? And what Paul does in the rest of this section is he shows us how Abraham's legacy of faith is an example for all of us. We'll pick it up in verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed God against all hope. Remember a few weeks ago, we went back to Genesis chapter 15. And remember, Abraham was looking around and God says, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to be your shield. I'm going to be your provider. And Abraham's going, but God, I'm not getting any younger. So obviously, everything I have is going to go to my key servant, Eliezer of Damascus. And God said, nope, not him. You're going to have a son. 
Abraham had no hope for that. It hadn't happened. Knowing ancient Near Eastern culture, no doubt he and Sarah had longed for an heir. And it wasn't happening. So he had no foundation but to just simply take God at his word. Abraham believed God against all hope. God had promised he would be a great nation. And Abraham saw the problem with the promise. I have no children, no offspring, no heir. Verse 19 shows us, verses 19 through 22 show us the next part of Abraham's legacy. Without weakening of his, in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham trusted that God was greater than his current circumstances. He trusted that. Paul says he didn't weaken in his faith. He trusted it. Here's, here's my circumstances. Abraham knew his circumstances. I'm 100 years old. In a sense, you know, I can't run as fast as I used to run. I can't jump as high as I used to jump. I don't even want to run. I don't even want to jump. Uh, my body, and in that sense, in a reproductive sense, Abraham said, my body's dead, and so is Sarah's womb. There's nothing here. Sometimes you and I face circumstances that are far beyond our control, far beyond our comprehension, far beyond to, to grasp the reality. In fact, when we do grasp the reality of our situation, it can be overwhelming. And sometimes we're tempted to just shut down and quit. Abraham could have been tempted to do that. Forget it. You don't, somehow, God, you don't get it. Pick somebody else. I'm not your guy. Sometimes we're tempted to determine that God's not capable, so I have to fix it on my own. Abraham did that. Paul says his faith didn't waver. Uh, I would give him that, but I'm going to tell you, you go back and you read Genesis, and no, Abraham's faith was kind of a little bit of a roller coaster. Genesis 12, God calls him into this land, and, and uh, there's a famine. And what's Abraham do? He packs up and goes to Egypt. And what's he do there? He says, and, and he was half right, he says, this isn't my wife, it's my sister. Because his fear was that God wasn't big enough to protect him, so I better come up with this ruse. And so Pharaoh says, oh, wow, okay, come on into my harem. And uh, then God visits him and he kicks Abraham out because she was his half-sister, so he was half-right. But he does it again with Abimelech. Uh, his faith wasn't perfect. And in Genesis, at the end of Genesis 15, and actually into Genesis 16, he's looking around he's saying, man, this still isn't working. We still don't have any children. So he does what was normal for the day. He goes in and, and he has Hagar, Sarah's maid servant, and, and they have a son named Ishmael. 
And God says, that's great, but that's not my plan, Abraham. And eventually he had to send Hagar and Ishmael out of the camp. His faith wasn't perfect. But he still somehow believed that God could do what he promised despite the circumstances. And let me remind you this morning, that is far easier said than done. And yet, it's the path God has for you and me. God has promised us, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And it's very possible in this moment, you might be feeling like, yeah, that's for somebody else, not me. We all face times of loneliness. We all face times when we are low, when we are down, when we are depressed. And We've got to believe because sometimes it's all we've got that God is there, that he's not forgotten us. Verse 20 said, Abraham did not waver. I'm going to tell you, I know firsthand how difficult it is to stare circumstances in the face and really wonder and begin to waver and to struggle And I have found that sometimes all I've got is just clinging to the reality of God and believing against all hope that God is there, even when I have no answers. Abraham does one other thing. His legacy is not only that he clung to God against all hope. His legacy is found in verses 23 to 25. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us, us who believe in him, who raised Jesus Christ our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Abraham points us, long, before, long after he was gone, he still points us to the greatest display of God's grace. You see, when you and I really believe God, When you and I really believe that God sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, when you and I really believe that God had the power and the authority to bring about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, when you and I really believe that Jesus is alive today, we have walked through the door that God has given for us. It's the door of faith, not the door of ritual, not the door of of laws and, and standards. It's the door of faith opened by the grace of God. And and it's through that door we enter that loving faith relationship in which God, by His grace, because of our faith, no matter how weak our faith is, no matter how simple our faith is, when we walk through that door, God declares that we are righteous in His sight. We've done nothing because we can do nothing. We have no earning power. We have no familial standing. We have no spiritual privilege. We have no ancestry or pedigree. We have no path of education that can get us there. None of our achievements, however magnanimous or great or acknowledged they may be, earn for us God's gift. It's a gift. 36 years ago, 
I sat down at a meal that someone gave me as they sacrificed for me. It was a gift. It was their grace to us. It has had a profound impact on my life. And I think when we remember at communion, whether it's weekly during Lent or once a month or whenever we do it, I think that profound sacrifice ought to have an effect on our lives. Take time to be reminded of the sacrifice that Jesus gave to you and me some 2,000 years ago. It's the pinnacle of God's grace to us. The late Dallas Willard has written, wrote, and was prolific in writing and all, and, and sprinkled throughout his writing is this little phrase. Grace is opposed to earning. It's not grace if you pay for it. It's not grace if you do something for it. It's not grace if it's based on a ritual. It's not grace if it's based on a set of standards. It's only grace when it's free. In God's perfect plan, it's not about earning. It's about accepting his grace. And by our belief in Jesus, trusting that God will credit our faith as righteousness, and then learning day by day what it means to surrender and follow Jesus. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the example we have of Abraham, a man we've only read about, will not meet this side of heaven, but who beyond hope trusted you. May we learn day in and day out what it means to trust you and to learn day in and day out what it means to surrender, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily and to serve you and to follow you. We give you the glory and the honor and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.